Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for braving that treacherous weather out there with that blue sky and that sunshine to make it to church this morning. It's been kind of an interesting weekend. Uh, we've had all of our crowds have been down. This, is, this one's down too, but we're thankful that you're here. Thankful you folks across the street, the video venue, and everybody join us online. We had a really small crowd last night. The weatherman forecasted freezing rain and ice, and only problem is we didn't have any. What do they say? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me 350,000 times, you're a weatherman. <laughs> right? Hey, grab a Bible and go to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. My apologies to all weather men or women in the service or joining us online. Matthew chapter 2, as uh, Matt said in uh, the opening of the service, we're going to rejoin our study through the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus. We took a one-week break. Uh, last week for our special Christmas service. What a great service that was. I hope you were able to be here for one of those services. We had over, over 6,000 people joining us on campus and another almost 1,000 people joining us online. It was a great, great weekend. Well, here's the deal. As we open up our Bibles to Matthew 2 today, I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. My, I'm going to preach a message on the entire second chapter of Matthew today, um, and uh, that's not something that's going to happen very often, and it probably won't happen again through this study, but uh, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 2, you know that for the most part, it, it is a, a consolidated, it's a brief and consolidated record of what happens uh, to Jesus or what happens in the story of Jesus following His birth. It begins with the visit of the Magi or the wise men from the east, and I hope you know that didn't happen on the same night that Jesus was born. And then it includes Joseph taking his new family to Egypt. He's warned by God in a dream to take them to Egypt for safety. And then eventually it tells us about how Joseph and Mary and Jesus return and settle in Nazareth. Without question, the uh, centerpiece of the chapter is the first 12 verses in the story of the Magi or the wise men, but there are more lessons to learn from chapter 2 than just the ones that we get in the familiar story of the Magi. So what we're going to do this morning is this. I'm going to use the entire chapter of, uh, the entire second chapter of Matthew to give you four different ways that we can view Christmas, four different views of Christmas. I'll give you four words to describe each one of those views, and uh, two of them are bad and two of them are good. So uh, we're going to focus on the ones that are good. But having said all that, if you've got your Bibles open there, stand together with me like we always do in reverence and respect for God's Word. I'm not going to read the entire second chapter. It's not real long. It's just 23 verses. But I'm just going to read the first 12 verses, the most familiar part of the story, the story of the Magi, uh, and then we'll look at the rest of the verses as we work our way through the chapter. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and, he has come to and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them 
until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, notice that it says house there. That's the single greatest evidence that this was not the night Jesus was born. Jesus was born in a stable, right? Everyone say right. Now he's in a house. This is sometime later. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the Uh, to their country by another route. All right, that's it. You can be seated this morning. We always pray God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Four views of Christmas. Let me give you four words that describe four views of Christmas. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down next to number one these words, a view of hostility. That's number one, a view of hostility. Hostility is our word. And to see this, we'll focus our attention on King Herod, who both history and the Bible tells us was an absolute madman. Let me give you just a little bit of a brief overview of the life of King Herod. And by the way, there are a lot of King Herods through the history. Uh, this, just for the sake of clar- clarification, was Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Let me give you a little overview of his life. When he was only 25 years old, he was named the governor of Galilee, which was a high position for a man that young. But he was placed in that position for a reason. His, his character had already begun to come out. His skills so to speak, had already begun to show themselves. He was placed in that position so he could stop Jewish rebels from fighting against the Roman government, what they believed to be their Roman oppressors. And he did this. He was successful at it, ultimately by capturing and executing in a brutal, in a public and brutal way, the leader of these rebels, a man named Ezekias. And that's how his rule began. Because Herod was not Jewish, He wanted to try to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people, so he married a woman named Miriam, who was a member of a leading Jewish family. And from there, his career just simply progressed until ultimately he was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate, a title, by the way, that the Jews hated because Herod was neither Jew by birth or by religion, and so he was hated by the Jews. And as the years roll on, he proves himself to be a clever leader, but he also proves himself to be a cruel leader, and it's the cruelty that history remembers the most about him. He demonstrated it over and over again as he brutally removed anyone who threatened his position and his power. In fact, history tells us that he killed many people. For example, one of the first people that he killed out of nothing more than just paranoia and insecurity was his brother-in-law, a man named Aristobulus. Aristobulus was the high priest at the time. And he felt threatened by the power and the influence of Aristobulus. And so he wanted him executed. He wanted him gone. He did it in a kind of an unusual and maybe sadistically clever way. He invited him on a hot day. He said, let's go swimming. Let's go cool off and let's go swimming. And so they went swimming together. Aristobulus didn't know, though, that when he got into the water, that Herod had arranged for other men to be there who got in the water also, grabbed him by his ankles, pulled him down to the bottom until he drowned. And that's how he did away with his brother-in-law, Aristobulus. After it was over, he threw this elaborate public funeral for everyone uh, in Jerusalem, and he wept openly so everyone can see what a deep loss it was to King Herod. Not long after that, he had his wife killed. Not long after that, he had his mother-in-law killed. Not long after that, he had two of his sons killed, all because of fear and suspicion. You begin to get an idea of what a cruel and brutal man that he was. 
Five days before his own death, about a year after Jesus was born, he had his third son executed. One of the greatest evidences of the insanity of Herod and the cruelty of Herod came when he had the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem arrested and imprisoned just days before his own death. He did this because he knew that when he died, no one in the city of Jerusalem would mourn, but he wanted to make sure someone was mourning, at least for someone. So he gave orders that upon his death, all of the men who had been arrested were to be executed so that people were mourning in the city of Jerusalem, even if it wasn't for him. That gives you an idea of the kind of man that he was. But friends, far and away, with all of that said, and there's so many more examples uh, from history that we could cite, but with all of that said, far and away, the most barbaric thing that he, King Herod ever did is recorded for us right here in Matthew chapter 2. We didn't see it in the first 12 verses, but look at verse 13, and let's read a little bit further in the chapter. Verse 13 goes on to say, when they had gone, that's a reference to the magi or the wise men, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now pay attention to the next few verses. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And here it is. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What an act of barbaric terrorism by King Herod. I'm not even going to try to describe the unimaginable horror of that event. I think verse 18 captured it pretty clearly. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's one of those things that's almost difficult to believe even happened, but the truth is it's consistent with every single thing that we know about Herod the Great killing his was how he had protected himself and stayed on top for over 40 years. So there's no reason to think that he wouldn't do something like this to try to get rid of someone that he thought was a threat because Herod viewed Christmas from a place of hostility. Jesus, we need to understand, was born into hostility because he was born into a world where there were rulers who wanted to kill him. That gives an even deeper meaning to what John wrote about Jesus in John chapter 111 when he said about him, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to the world that he created, but there were people in the world from the time he was born that wanted to see him dead. Herod viewed Christmas from a place of hostility. Now, the truth is, that hasn't changed all that much today because there are people who continue to view Christmas from that same perspective. We see examples of it every year as it becomes more and more inappropriate to celebrate Christmas in a culture that's gone crazy. Nativity scenes are pulled from public places. Christmas carols are prohibited in as innocent a settings as elementary schools. Atheists put up billboards disregarding the Christian faith. Just saying the words Merry Christmas have become controversial in the culture that we live in today. Now, we shake our heads, we wring our hands, we think this is horrible, and we think it's new, but it's not. 
There was hostility toward Christmas, the message of Christmas, the Christ of Christmas from the time he was born. Jesus knew that hostility would continue. That's why he said a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 10, 22, he told his disciples, all men will hate you because of me. They'll hate you because they hate me. There's been hostility toward Jesus from the beginning. That means, listen, that means we make a mistake if we think that Christmas is all about love and peace and harmony. Those are certainly a part of the Christmas story. Those things are certainly a part of the ultimate meaning and message of Christmas. But first and foremost, Christmas, in a sense, is about conflict. Always has been, always will be. And a big reason why is because Jesus came into the world to bring peace, but he didn't come into the world to bring peace at the expense of truth. And truth can be offensive when it challenges your life. Truth can be offensive when it challenges the way you think and the things that you believe and the way that you behave. You know, we, we, we don't have a whole lot of information about the birth of Jesus. And of the four Gospels, all we really have is the brief record of Jesus' birth in Matthew, and then it's pr- primarily Matthew chapter 1, and then the brief record of Jesus' birth in Luke. Luke has the more exhaustive record of Jesus' birth. And we're familiar with that story. We, we hear it every year. We read it in our homes. It's a part of our lives. You remember that part of the story where angels appeared to shepherds in the field to announce the birth of Jesus? In Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, the angels appeared and their message to the shepherds was glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, now note this, peace to men on whom his favor rests. What does that mean? Well, friends, it means that we only have peace on this earth when we're pleasing to God, when God's favor rests upon us so that we're pleasing to him. And that's something that only happens when we surrender our lives and we surrender our hearts to Christ, something that many people today are unwilling to do, and that creates conflict which leads some people to view Christmas from a place of hostility. A little bit later in Luke's gospel, I don't know if you remember this story or not, I didn't really include it on the PowerPoint, but after Jesus had been born and after he was a little bit older, uh, there was a time when his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, took him to the temple to be dedicated. Luke chapter 2 tells us that there was a man at the temple named Simeon who is described as a righteous and a devout man. And we're told in Luke chapter 2 that he was given the promise from the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw what my NIV Bible calls the consolation of Israel. Now, here's how we understand that. The Holy Spirit said, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And he was there in the temple courts when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated. And he took Jesus in his arms and he realized immediately who he was. He said, now I can die in peace. But then he says an interesting thing about Jesus. He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Do you remember that? That's the reality of who Jesus is, friends. Simeon captured it with a single statement. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many. Why? Because people who reject him are going to fall. People who accept him are going to rise. It's just that simple. Jesus and the story of Christmas is a story, in a sense, has been from the very beginning of conflict. And so a lot of people view Christmas from a place of hostility. How do we respond to that? Well, we respond simply by living our lives and living out our faith in Christ in a way that makes the reality of who he is and what he has to offer clear. Let me give you a second view. 
The second thing that I, I gleaned from Matthew chapter 2 with regard to how you can view Christmas is you can view it with a view of indifference. Indifference is the second word you could write down in your notes. And we see that really back in the very first part of Matthew 2. We already read this, but look back at verse 3 through 6, okay? This to me is an amazing part of the Christmas story that oftentimes we just gloss over. After the wise men came, the Magi came and said, where's the one born king of the Jews? We read this beginning in verse 3. When King Herod heard, that he heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, as I said, it's an amazing part of the Christmas story. When Herod inquired of the chief priests and the teachers of the law about where the Christ was going to be born, they knew exactly how to answer. There's no indication in the text that it took them any time at all to come up with the answer. They didn't have to go away and do research or study. They knew the answer right away. But at the same time, they showed absolutely no interest in the announcement of the Magi related to the star and their search for Jesus, the King of the Jews. You know, from a purely geographical standpoint, Bethlehem is only a few miles away from Jerusalem. Depending on where you would be in the city of Jerusalem and where you would try to get to in the city of Bethlehem, it was no more than about five or six miles away. And yet these chief priests and teachers of the law, these religious men, didn't care enough to travel those few miles to investigate this birth for themselves. What the scriptures had to say about the birth of the Christ, the Messiah, was just information to them. They should have been singing and dancing at the news that the Messiah had been born, that the Savior of the world had come. Instead, they just completely ignored his birth like it never even happened. But how does something like that happen? Well, you can find the answer in a single word, and again, that word is indifference. And honestly, you can make the case that this is perhaps the worst mistake you can make with regard to the way you choose to view Christmas. At least Herod could have said that his view of Christmas was based on something. His view of Christmas, his view of hostility was based on insecurity, and it was based on fear. But the religious leaders, their view was based on the fact that they just didn't care. They just didn't care. As far as they were concerned, their lives were perfect. They didn't care about the possibility of a Messiah because they didn't need a Messiah. Well, I hope that we understand that there are still people like this today as well, people who miss the real meaning of Christmas every year because while they know the story, there's a lot of people who know the story of the birth of Jesus, they don't understand or realize how much they need Him. This includes people who go to church, who observe religious traditions because they think that's the sum total of their responsibility when it comes to having a right relationship with God. But there's so much more to it than that. Every year in the Christmas season, if you look at it from a global perspective, literally millions of people pour into churches and observe religious traditions. But a lot of them are just like the scribes or the teachers of the law and the chief priests. They got, a, they got just enough religion in their life to not really pay much attention to the reality that in Jesus, God became a man and he came into the world to save us. They've got enough religion in their lives to feel okay about their lives, but they've never really had a personal encounter with Jesus. Over the years, I can't tell you how many times, and, and you know, maybe this has happened to you as well, 
Over the years, I can't tell you how many times I have encountered somebody, I've met somebody. Uh, sometimes it was, you know, uh, uh, a preset appointment, maybe with somebody from church or who had visited church. And sometimes it's just people that I meet in the community and I, I talk to and I invite them to church or I, or I try to have the opportunity to, to talk to them about Christ and share my faith with them, only to have them respond to me by saying something like this. Right when I get in, you know, I'm, I make the invitation to church or I, or I say something about, you know, having a personal faith in Christ and, and this is the response that I get. They say, well, I'm Catholic. Or they say, well, I'm a Lutheran. Well, I'm a Methodist. Or I'm a Baptist. Or I'm a, you fill in the blank, any number of denominational affiliations. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Everybody listen to me really close. I want you to not misunderstand me. I'm not criticizing any of those churches, any of those, any of those professions or anything like that. But I do compa- feel compelled to say this one thing this morning in the context of this message and this idea of viewing Christmas from a place of indifference. Having a right relationship with God is not determined first and foremost by your church affiliation. I hope we all understand that this morning. It's not determined by your church affiliation. It's determined by whether or not there's been a time in your life when you, op- you open your heart to Christ in a personal way. It's determined by whether or not you have a personal, a personal relationship with Him. One of my favorite Christmas stories, and I'm, I'm almost certain that I've told this here before because I've, I've just been here too long to not be able to remember or not be able to repeat myself at different times, but it's a great story and it bears repeating, even if you've heard it before. But it, it's a story that comes from a great preacher named Jess Moody who has since died and gone to be with the Lord. But he tells a story of how years ago at a Bible study he was leading, he met Rose Kennedy. Now, Rose Kennedy was the mother, of course, of President John F. Kennedy. And as he was teaching the Bible study that night, he challenged all the people that were there to make sure that their hearts in that moment, in that exact moment, were ready to meet the Lord because he said, you know, life is short and none of us has the hope or the promise of tomorrow. None of us knows what the future may hold, so we need to be ready to meet the Lord now, which is great, a great message, right? Something we all need to be reminded of. When the meeting was over, the study was over, Rose Kennedy asked if she could speak with him privately. And when she did, she told Jess Moody, she said, I've done exactly what you were talking about tonight. And then she told him a story of how after she, not long after she got married, she became pregnant and she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. But soon it became apparent to both her and her husband that there was something wrong with this little girl. And medical tests revealed that the little girl had been born severely mentally handicapped and would probably have to spend the majority of her life institutionalized. She told Jess Moody that she and her husband were devastated. And that devastation eventually turned into an enormous amount of anger toward God. And when she would pray, she would say, God, how could you do this? Why did you do this to us? The anger became a bitterness that began to to drain every ounce of joy from her life. She said one night she and her husband were scheduled to attend a social gathering. It was a pretty big deal. But at the last moment, she told her husband, I just can't go. I can't do it. She said, I don't trust myself. She was so angry with God and so angry with the circumstances of her life. She said, I don't trust myself and what I might say if I were out in a social setting and someone were to ask me the condition of our daughter. And so they stayed home. A little bit later in the evening, there was a maid that worked for them, had worked for them for several years, and she approached Rose Kennedy, and she said, Mrs. Kennedy, I've been watching you, and I've seen how angry you are. And then she said this. It was pretty bold, but she said this. If you don't do something, it's going to ruin your life. She said, I think you should pray this prayer. 
was a simple prayer that went like this. Oh, Lord, make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. Make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. Rose Kennedy told Jess Moody that she was so angry with the maid for being so bold that night that she fired her on the spot and demanded that she leave her house immediately. But she went to bed that night and she couldn't sleep. She kept tossing and turning back and forth because she couldn't get the words of that prayer out of her mind. And then finally, ultimately, she got up and she knelt by the side of her bed and she prayed those words. In an act of deep surrender, she just said, Lord, make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. And she said, in that moment, in the depth of the night, when I cried out in anguish to God, he heard and he answered my prayers. And then this is what she said to Jess Moody. I want you to listen to me close. She said, I've always been religious. I'm a Catholic. I believe in Jesus. Always have. But this was different. It was different because on that night, she opened her heart to Christ in a new way, and her heart, in fact, became a manger where the Christ child could be born. She went out, she rehired the maid that she fired who worked for their family for many more years until she died. But here's the point. You know, I know that all of us have different backgrounds, and we've got, we've got religious connections and backgrounds that come from our childhood or our families and a variety of different things. And I'm not criticizing any of that. But I'm telling you this, Jesus wants to be more than a story to you. He wants to be your personal Savior. And you won't ever fully understand who He is or what He has to offer until you open up your heart to Him in a personal way. And until you do that, you're in danger of viewing Christmas from a place of indifference because you've got just enough religion to make you think that it's all okay. Let me give you a third word. The third thing I glean from the Gospel of Matthew is that we can view Christmas with a view of worship. Write down the word worship. And this comes from the story of the Magi, the wise men, the most familiar part of the story. I read it earlier. I talked a little bit about the Magi last week in the Christmas service, so I'm not going to spend much time on this. I'm going to focus on one part of a verse. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, the first part says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the Magi, and we could ask questions about their identity, where they came from, how we're to understand this star that they followed, and it could lead to a fascinating time of study. But let's just focus on the fact that these men were seekers. No doubt they were genuinely wise men, learned men, important men, probably from the land of Persia, which is modern-day Iran for you and me. That means they probably traveled somewhere between 800 and 900 miles to find Jesus. Because they were Persia, it's quite possible that they were familiar with the writings of the Old Testament prophet Daniel, who was a captive there. And if they were familiar with the Old Testament writings of Daniel, they were probably familiar with the fact that in his writings, he gave a timeline for the birth of the Messiah. They might have known all of those things there's no way to know for sure but let's just understand them this morning as men who were seekers following a star following a light that God had provided and here's the bottom line even though they were pagan men from a pagan country filled with pagan gods they ultimately were able to recognize Jesus for who he was and as a result they bowed down and they worshiped him 
And so you have Herod who tried to kill him. You have the religious leaders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law who just ignored him. But you find pagan men who worshipped him. Why? Because wise men and wise women have always understood the importance of seeking Jesus and worshiping him. And what a great way to view Christmas with a view of worship. I'm going to give you a fourth thing real quickly. The fourth way we can view Christmas is we can view it with a view of hope. And this is my favorite. This is what I think is the best one to view Christmas from a perspective of hope. Let's just look at the very last part of the chapter that we haven't read yet. It's not very long, verses 19 through 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, Notice, that, notice there that it's prophets, plural, prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, listen to me. I know that we didn't read all this passage at one period of time altogether in a free-flowing manner, but let me just ask you this question. Did you notice by any chance, did anybody notice as we looked at this chapter, how many times from verse 13, we, we began by reading the first 12 verses, the story of the Magi, but did anybody notice how many times from verse 13 down to the end of chapter, verse 23, we read words like this, so was fulfilled or then was fulfilled? We read those words three times. In verse 15, in verse 17, and finally in verse 23. And on top of that, in those first 12 verses, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, we read about the prophecy of where the Christ would be born, the fact that the chief priests and the teachers of the law knew that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And so what that means is in 23 verses, according to my NIV Bible, 23 verses of Matthew chapter 2, there are four references to Jesus and fulfilled prophecy. Four references. We're just in the second chapter of Matthew. We began this study a couple of weeks ago, and I preached from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and the genealogy of Jesus, or the family line of Jesus. And then the next week, Matt Pineda, who is our high school pastor, who opened the service this morning, he preached from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, the story of uh, the birth of Jesus, how an angel appeared to Joseph, who was concerned when he found out that Mary was pregnant, remember, because they had never been sexually intimate, they had not consummated their marriage, and he was concerned about what to do, and an angel appeared and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Remember that part of the story? He, he went on and said, you know, she's going to give birth to a son. You're giving the name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. It's a tremendous thing. But then what Matthew does next in verses 22 and 23, after that, he says this, all this took place to fulfill, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now listen to me. The reference in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, to this reality about Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 that was made some 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. And now we see the fulfillment of this in the birth of Jesus. 
That's the reality of all these prophecies. So we have the one in Matthew. We have the four in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, the one about where Jesus would be born, that's found in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. The one about Jesus being called out of Egypt, that's Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. The one about the weeping and the mourning in Ramah, that's Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. The one about Jesus being called a Nazarene is a little bit more difficult. Remember I said it said the prophets. It was plural. You can't necessarily pull up just one specific passage of Scripture, but most Bible scholars concur on the truth that all throughout the Old Testament, there are prophetic passages about Jesus and the truth that when He came, He would be despised and rejected, just like Isaiah says, for example, in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. And so the consensus is that the use of the word, he would be called a Nazarene, was very deliberate there because that was a word that was used in ancient days as a derogatory term. If somebody said you were a Nazarene or you're from Nazareth, it was a derogatory term about you because it was such a, a, a rotten place to be from, basically. And so that's the fulfillment of multiple Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Now, what does that tell us? tells us two things, the reality of these fulfilled prophecies. tells us, number one, that Jesus is the Messiah. Somebody say amen to that. He's the Messiah. He is who he said he was. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. But the second thing it tells us is this. It tells us that our God, friends, our sovereign God rules this world with a plan And it's in this second truth that God rules this world with a plan where we find great hope. God knows what he's doing in this world that he created, which means God knows what he's doing in your life, even in those moments when it feels like nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the world is filled with a lot of people today, and maybe this describes some of you who are here or some of you who are across the street or listening to me online. The world is filled with a lot of people today who have lost their hope or who are in danger of losing their hope because you've been waiting on God to do something in your life for a long time. You've been waiting on God to answer your prayers or maybe a specific prayer for a long time. You've been waiting on God to remove a problem, an obstacle, a burden. You've been waiting on God to do something in some circumstance in your life for a long time and you have lost or you're losing your hope. If that's the reality of your life, you need to know this morning that the Christmas story is a story of hope for all of us on so many levels. You know, we just have to trust that God has a plan in our lives and find hope in that. Do you know, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're just, we're just brand new into this study. We're just in chapter 2 of 28 chapters. Did you know that from the end of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, to the beginning of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and the earliest recorded gospel story of Jesus' life, you know there are 400 years where God didn't say a word to his people? 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years where God didn't speak to his people. But that didn't mean that God didn't still have a plan. And that plan began when Jesus was born. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 2. You know, from the end of Matthew chapter 2 until we open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 in a, in a few weeks when we rejoin the study in January, from the end of Matthew 2 to the beginning of Matthew 3, there, there are some 30 years of complete silence about what happened or what was going on in Jesus' life as he grew from a boy to a man. 
We don't know anything about what happened during that period of time except a couple of things that Luke's gospel tells us. Luke's gospel tells us the story about how Jesus was 12 years old. He went to the temple and confounded the theologians. And then Luke says in verse 52 of chapter 2, he says about Jesus, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's all we know. Some 30 years of complete silence about Jesus. But God still had a plan. And when you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist shows up and he begins to prepare the way for Jesus. Then Jesus shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist, which is the beginning of Jesus' earthly vocational ministry. Here's the deal. God rules this world, which means he rules your life and mine with a plan. And in that, there's hope. There's hope. No matter who you are, no matter what the circumstance of your life is, Christmas reminds us that there's always hope. Christmas is a story of hope, and that's how we should view it. Every time you see a nativity scene, every time you see a manger, you should think about hope. Every time you hear a familiar Christmas hymn or song, you should think about hope. Every time anything from the Christmas season strikes your heart, your mind, your sight, your ears, in any way, you need to be reminded of hope. There's hope for you and whatever it is that's on your heart. In fact, let me give you a Christmas verse that will never be considered a Christmas verse in any other setting. Look at it. It's on the screen. It's uh, Psalm 42 and verse 5. We'll put those words on the screen. Read these words with me. I want to hear your voices. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. We just remember the first part. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And here it is. Say it with me again. Put your hope in God. There's hope for you. No matter what's going on in your life, when, you, when you've lost your hope or it's just barely hanging on by a thread, you need to remember that the Christmas story is a story of hope. You know, someone once said, a man named Joseph Addison once said, there are three grand essentials to happiness in life. Something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. The Christmas story reminds us there's always hope, no matter what. Let's pray.